Hey, I'm Mike Joseph, and thank you for listening to Detoxicity, a show by men, about men, but for everyone. I hope you enjoy the content of this podcast, and I want to let you know about a few things you can do to support us and our mission to challenge traditional notions of masculinity and create a more communicative, positive, and loving environment for all. You can subscribe to Detoxicity on any podcast platform that you use to listen. We are available just about everywhere. Also, don't hesitate to rate and comment as these help us move up in the podcast rankings. I'm on social media, or at least I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Feel free to drop me a follow. Now I have a Patreon page, yay! And uh, Patreon gives you the opportunity to get cool merch and exclusive episodes of this podcast in exchange for subscribing. Go to patreon.com slash detoxicitypod to find out more. Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. Hey, y'all. My guest for this episode is Edward Miskey, who is an actor, voiceover artist, and author based here in New York City. Uh, Edward takes us through his rural Pennsylvania upbringing and uh, how he was affected by being outed as a teenager, uh, something that should never happen to anybody. Uh, We also talk relationships. We talk moxie, because Edward's done some pretty ballsy things in his life. Um, We talk about theater. We talk about Edward's diagnosis with a rare form of cancer, uh, and he goes into greater detail about that in his book, which is called Cancer, Musical Theater, and Other Chronic Illnesses. It is available now. Um, The last episode we gave you was was pretty heavy, and this one is also kind of heavy, but it is definitely uh, balanced out with humor. Edward is a laugh riot, uh, and, uh, you know, I think uses humor to sort of downplay the severity of some of the uh, things that he's gone through. So anyway, without further ado, uh, I would like to introduce you to Edward Miskey. I am Edward Miskey, and I today I'm a hot mess. <laughs> <laughs> some might say that's the best time to do a podcast. I, I was just thinking that. I was like, this is either going to go sideways or it's going to be brilliant, because I'm like borderline, like maybe feverish and desperately need a nap. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll see how this goes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Set the table for our listeners. Oh, are we eating? It's on the table. <laughs> starving <laughs> thirsty and starving hey okay so i i'm a new yorker i've been in new york for almost 20 years i am an author i just had my book published last fall cancer congratulations and other chronic illnesses thank you it's available at barnes and noble and i had a, an article on insider that, hey, I was hey. Like, that i was like paid to do i was this influencing is this <laughs> what this life is but yeah i've done musical theater my whole life i am also a singer songwriter composer like pop adjacent kind of music i, I kind of do everything everything from like, marketing sales branding stuff to like i'll sing you a song like <laughs> i don't maybe know not, if anyone's ever sang a song before maybe maybe we'll see well let's see how i feel by the end of this because it could go real bad oh, <laughs> this boy. may be something you edit out oh boy. So, where are you from originally i'm originally from central pennsylvania like amish adjacent territory grew up in farmland essentially is is my journey and i moved here right after high school literally three days after high school that thing i tell people it's like i graduated may 27th and june 1st my lease started and i was like deuces bye 
it, wow. And so was that like an I'm going to college in New York thing? No. Was it I need to get the hell out of my small town thing? I didn't go to college. <laughs> Do I look like someone who went to college? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't know what that even looks like. I don't either. No, I didn't go to college. I needed to get the hell out of my small town. I, I was dying there and I knew it and I could feel it. And it, parents were naturally terrified for me. And I essentially made that worse by saying, you can either help me move here or I will just do it on my own without you. Uh, but one way or another, I was moving here and I did not need anyone's permission. I was an adult. They could not stop me. And caused a little bit of a rift. <laughs> As one would imagine. As one would imagine. We're good now. But it was it was a weird time. I was a teenager. I was newly out. I was forced out of the closet three years prior. A friend of mine was killed in a car accident. And my religion teacher, of all people, to no one's surprise, took it upon herself to out me to my class. While I wasn't there. And uh, I got to hear about it later. And it was just a really odd, there was a lot that happened. That friend was killed in a car accident. We had a bunch of other friends who were as well in those years. And my senior year was just like, I am ready to fuck off out of this place. I started looking for apartments in the city around January of that year. I was just like, I'm ready to go. I don't care if I graduate. I'm out. We're done. Wow. And so many questions come as a result of that. <laughs> First of all, how do you get outed from a car accident? Like, where's the connection there? Okay, I really want to say something snarky, but I'm not going to. <laughs> the car went up my ass, and I liked it, and they were like... St hmm. Straight, hey, look, straight guys like it up the butt, too. I Listen, that is a, that is a conversation I'm willing to have. <laughs> don't i know it anyway that's another story never mind. Mm -hmm. it was because he was also of a homosexual persuasion and wasn't really out either and i knew him through a program at the college down the road he was older than i was we were both interested in similar things we didn't necessarily have a thing going on but like i was into him i don't know if that was reciprocated but i was definitely like Yes. And like I went to the LGBT group at the college covertly and uh, ended up happening is that he was killed in this car accident. A mutual friend told me because this was pre-smartphone. It was like through instant messenger, like AIM. AIM, yeah. Um, and they told me and I didn't know who to call. And I just was like, okay, well, I go to a Catholic school. I think these people help with grief and loss and stuff. So I was friends with my religion teacher's daughter. So I called her and I talked to her. She invited me over to her house for lunch to talk to me about it and ate some food. And we sat in the living room and she just was like, can I ask you a question? And before I even answered, she was like, was this person a homosexual? And I was like, yeah. And the response that I got <laughs> was that because he was gay and because I too was gay, that God took it upon himself to remove him so before he would engage in a sinful relationship. And Is somehow, that what God does? And so somehow it was my fault. And so what I ended up doing was I just kind of stormed out of the house and I was like, we're done here. And uh, that was a Saturday. Following Monday, she told my class that I was I needed to be prayed for because I was struggling with homosexuality. Oh, God. So to wrap that story up in a pretty little bow, I asked to see her in her office. I backed her into her office 
And I let her know that I was aware that she was taking alcohol to her 19-year-old daughter at college. And wouldn't it be a shame if the school board found out? Damn. And she started crying and apologizing. And my sassy little gay, however old I was, ass was like, bitch, you are not sorry. You are sorry you got caught. Yep. yep. And she was like, oh, 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 oh. and I, I kept it to myself, but I, I held that over her head for years until I graduated. Like, I would see her, I'd people? see her in the hall and I'd be like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Anyway, wow. So... <laughs> First of all, that's horrible. Well, it's where I grew up. <laughs> right. Right. And if you'd visit there, you would understand. Right. Which obviously explains a lot about why you wanted to get out of there so yeah. quickly. Yeah, that was um, definitely an accelerant. And that was kind of what I mean by like, I was dying there. Right. And there was no future for me there at all. And that, that kind of like drove the nail into the literal coffin and proverbial coffin, where I was just like, you know, I gotta go was being gay the primary reason that you wanted to get out or was it more like a general wanting to spread wings and be in an, an environment that was more inclusive i mean that short no that was like pretty little bonus that i, I got to be a gay person and live in a city that was like 98 percent cool with that and i got to thrive here because of that environment but i really moved here to be a performer and I moved here originally to be like pop star <laughs> because of course i did <laughs> And that kind of morphed itself into doing musical theater because that was also something that I did. And I, I recorded my first like album when I was like, I don't know, 13. And uh, I did that with my dad. And then we re-recorded it when I was 16. And then I was like, I'm going to go to the city and I am going to blow up. And I was trying to do like downtown DJ scene situation in the clubs around the same time that Gaga would have been because we're about the same age. Okay. And uh, I think she's like a year younger than I am. But I was trying it. And it back then, before like, technology is what it is now, you showed up with a demo and you begged a DJ. And sometimes you paid a DJ. And I didn't have any money. I wasn't going to do that. And so it was just kind of like waiting my turn a lot of the times and like just being like, I feel like there's a better use of my time. Mm -hmm. And so with musical theater <clears throat> and theater in general, have the, I guess, luxury of being able to sign up and show up and sing and do the thing and maybe you'll get a job. And that, that process at least felt like it had more integrity than legging a DJ who was like doing blow off, off of the box to, to let play your fucking song. <laughs> it's such a hustle, man. Oh my God. Um, I've had many lives. <laughs> <laughs> things that people in the creative arts have to do to get themselves yeah. noticed. Yeah. Well, I mean, I fucking wish I was 19 right now because like I'm cranking out tracks a couple times a year now. And that's like the job. When I was 19, right. I could barely hold on to a job. And I fucked off a lot. If I had this kind of technology when I was 19, I'd be goddamn Justin Bieber. But like, <laughs> I didn't have that. And I didn't have the, the cognizance or the wherewithal or whatever you want to call it to try and do that. I was thinking in analog where I had to like hire musicians and pay them to go to a studio and rehearse charts that I had put together or had a friend put together so that we could learn the song, record the song. And like, it's just this long drawn out process. And so now the keyboard here, I have some sound equipment around my desk. I built a sound booth in my closet and I, I can crank shit out pretty fast. Technology is a wonderful thing. Yeah. And it, it doesn't always catch us at the right time. 
Yeah. And my dad's a singer songwriter and he was very analog. I mean, he's obviously older than I am. So like he was very analog, but <laughs> no, he's kind of having like a full out lens career right now in his sixties because of technology. And because like you were saying, the things you have to go through as a creative artist are kind of mitigated and circumvented now because of technology. And unfortunately, it is still not a meritocracy. And what it comes down to is money, because the more money you have to pay for promo and to put forward to get yourself out there, the better you do. I have a record label that I work with that I will like give a certain amount of money per track and they put it out and I get on lists and then I kind of have like ever going amount of plays per month that they have gotten me on a list that I've paid for. It's payola all over again, right. but it's right. just different now. Right. Yeah. As, as the technology changes, the method changes, but ultimately when you boil it down to the practice, it's a lot of the same shit. Yeah. And the payola thing I don't think has really ever gone away. But No, it, it hasn't. No, it's just changed. But it's it's also different because in analog times, you had a band and you were good and you were playing out. They would send A&R people out to specifically look for new acts to do the things. And now those people and those jobs still exist. It's just perusing online all day and seeing yeah. who's going viral on TikTok yeah. and like who has the best following and like... There's an artist I follow named Jordy, and he's like this like little gay guy who writes music, and he's done really well. He's on tour right now, I think. And you know, I don't know if he has a record label or not, but he's cranking shit out, and his social media is popping. And follow his story, and that's real gag now, which is kind of why I've gotten into what I've gotten into with like social media stuff, because it's really shaping a story around your brand and around who you are that people can follow. Because like you're just selling and putting shit out all the time. Like I'm bored, right? You know, right. You can't is... just be this person that does this thing. There does have to be a story around you and you yeah. have to be a little bit more open about who you are and what your passions are and what you've been through and that kind of right. thing. Because this is not the home shopping network. <laughs> Things don't work the way they do anymore. They, and I will tell you the master of this, in my opinion, and I'm sure there are other examples, but I will always and forever point to this example is Taylor Swift. And yes, yeah. she has budget and a whole team. Yes. But the rollout for Midnight's, the rollout for Folklore, like, genius. Absolutely genius. What's funny about it is that she came into the door through traditional means. Yeah. And I think partially, at least because of how old or how young she is. Well, I, that's what I was going to say is it, she was lucky enough that she got to straddle both analog and digital. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And so that's one of the reasons why I think she's so smart and her team is so tight because they have that experience of both. It's like saying, I remember before the internet, but now I'm also running a business off of my phone in my hand. <laughs> yes, it's a knowledge of sides of the coin and it kind of points you in a direction where you can potentially say something that appeals to every demographic that there is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So you had sort of a major career and life interruption. God, your, so many, your book, so many of them. Which yes. one? <laughs> well, at least the title of your book is largely based. Of course, on, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and you developed a rare cancer. Sure did. <laughs> and I walk me through this story of that. Sure. So yes, I had cancer. <laughs> <laughs> Sharp left turn. Sharp left turn. I, I do try to keep this conversation as funny as possible. And for the book, one of the, the tagline that I use for it now is that it is a fantasy nonfiction, funny as cancer can be, musical theater fever dream about being a cancer patient and survivor. It's a lot of words. 
because that's what you're getting. I mean, it's not fiction. It's not nonfiction. It's fantasy nonfiction because you're living in a musical and the book is the musical. So yes, Cancer Musical Theater and other chronic illnesses available at Barnes & Noble having a renaissance. They're coming back and opening new stores. I love it for them. They are. It makes me so happy. I can't tell you. People love books. It's a great People thing. People love Barnes & Noble. Yes. You can buy books off Amazon, but Amazon sucks. So like, give me that B&N. Walk in there, it. have the experience of walking through aisles of books and buying them. Yes. Ugh. All right. Anyway, I keep getting sidetracked. I'm <laughs> telling you, I'm like delirious and feverish or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So I was doing Hairspray in Reno, Nevada, and I had this lump appear under my arm and over the course of about five months it went from being about the size of like a little almondy kind of shape to like a grapefruit we called it my third boob (laughs) and we eventually named it seymour from little top of horrors which is like that's a real situation that happened (laughs) i left an emergency room to have it looked at i was meeting my friend brian at a bar and little shop was playing on the the tvs inside the bar and I was telling Brian about what why it was late and emergency room and stuff. And I jokingly said, maybe it's one of those things that like was hair and teeth. And I'm like growing a twin in my arm. And he was like, well, you're going to have to name it. And so we were just like, yeah. And I went to reach for my drink and I looked up the TV screen and I was like, Seymour. Seymour. <laughs> Feed me Seymour. And we had such a hoot and a holler about it until it wasn't funny anymore. But yeah, so that was kind of the situation. And insider article that just came out about this sort of about this let's get this let's get that straight I was getting called to audition for big things and i ended up not going because i couldn't afford the flight back home to the city to do it but like th- i felt like i had this like really good momentum like i was working back to back and like bigger casting offices were calling me in like for bigger shows and stuff that was actually on broadway and you know it was kind of like okay well it's not happening now because i'm out here in reno but when i get back like, i'm gonna get this lump under my arm sorted and then i'll be back at it and then we hit grapefruit sized territory, and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go see my doctor and see yeah, what Yeah, I should has get this say. looked at. Yeah. And before I was like diagnosed and given antibiotics and all this other stuff. That's a whole story. But um, yeah, I mean, I got back from Reno right after Thanksgiving, and the first week of December, I started chemo. Whew. So it was like, brace yourself, bitch. It was aggressive and rare and growing very quickly. I still have like stretch marks all over my left side from how big it got and how fast it was growing. And uh, that was December 2011. Wow. (laughs) Merry Christmas. (laughs) Jeez. When you get something like that thrown at you, what is your initial response? Truthfully, I don't know if I remember because I had been kind of living with it already for half a year. And I knew it was something. And I think I had got, gotten it into my head that I was going to have to have it like surgically removed. Sure. So I think I preemptively prepared myself for the fact that I was going to have to be on pause for a second while whatever was going on with this happened. I didn't, and how could I, understand the magnitude and severity of it in that how could I know from looking at it that it was like one in a million cancer that like kills people and you don't live from it? Obviously I did, but it was that was not good news to get. And it I think in the lead up to me actually being in the hospital, I was fine. Or I was at least like fine in the sense, like quotation marks fine. Right. That I was getting up in the morning, I was still eating and showering and having coffee and being a human and talking to my parents and figuring out logistics and everything else. But then once I got into the hospital and I had signed all the paperwork and they had taken all my belongings to my room while I went into surgery that I didn't know I was having to have a port put in, I had a full, full meltdown. 
it was ugly. <laughs> like, I, I don't blame bad. you. Yeah, I mean, me neither. And it was, I'm not a big crier. I'm pretty like pragmatic and neutral about things and I, I don't react to a whole lot. And in my head, it was kind of like 20 years of me not crying coming out of my body. And uh, I mean, that's an exaggeration. I was only 25. So like maybe like five or six years. Of sure. That's still a lot of crying. <laughs> it was. And you know, my mom was there that first day and like you really got the brunt of it. And not that I was like pushing her around or anything. Like She just held me and, and sat with me and you know, it wasn't good. But then after the fact, I was pretty okay. A lot of it was like fear of the unknown. Like, I don't know what I'm walking into here. I could have chemo one and be dead. Like, knows? And that was kind of the fear. Is this the last time I'm seeing my mom before I go into the surgery? Because I didn't even know I was having surgeries. I barely knew what it was for. And uh, it was for a port, which I was like, what's a port? Like, <laughs> did I miss something? Why is this happening? And it was just this shitstorm of why is this happening? Because there were so many surprises and there was no clarity. And the hospital we were at wasn't very good. And it was also an ugly hospital. I mean, how many hospitals are nice? But it just was a lot to take in at once. And then kind of coming to terms with the realization, maybe two or three rounds of chemo in, where it was like, your life is no longer. And again, this is one of the reasons why I wrote this book. I figured, yeah, I'll be sick and yeah, all these things will happen. But I barely threw up. I didn't lose my hair until after my third round of chemo. I was under the assumption that like chemo was going to touch my body and all, every follicle was just going to be like, bye. Pop out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. Don't want to live here, bitch. Bye. But that's not what happened. And there's just like a lot of false understandings around about being a patient in the first place and what that kind of experience is like firsthand. And even secondhand, I mean, the people around me were like, what? And then on top of that, like you're out and you get like the, you get to live, buddy. That's a whole different set of rules and weirdness and minefields to kind of navigate your way through. I would have to imagine that fucks with your head a shit ton. I mean, the most ton, all it does is fuck your head. I think the biggest missing piece of the conversation is identity. You lose it. I went in there, I was insecure as I was. I was like, okay, I am 24. I am at least a six on the good looking scale, maybe a seven. In hindsight, I was like a 12, but we're not going to take too much credit. <laughs> <laughs> Youth, who wasn't a 12 when they were 24? Yeah, seriously. Real. And like, I was a working actor. I got to work a lot. And maybe it wasn't at the best theater in the country, but I still could say, oh, I'm doing a show. I'm an actor. Yeah. I'm starring in a show. And people dream of that their whole lives and they don't get it. And I, here I was at like 24, this tall mess and the work everywhere. And so like I had a, a lot going for me and I took it for granted. I didn't realize it. And until it went away. You don't know what you got till it's gone, right? Like Joni Mitchell. I was about to say Janet, but Joni works as well. <laughs> Everyone did that song. Like Yes, exactly. Um, the Joni version is the one I know, but that aside. And even after the fact, like once I hit my 30s, it was like, wow, you thought you were a disgusting hot mess at 27, but goddamn. <laughs> Youth is wasted on the young, as they say. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that like a Meryl Streep or like Glenn Close quote or something like that? It might, I don't remember where I heard it. I've heard it in a bunch of different iterations. Yeah. Priority shift must oh, have been pretty intense. Oh, yeah. Because you don't know who you are anymore. You don't know who you are, what you want to do, who your friends are. I was lucky in the sense that I didn't know who my friends were, but because they showed up for me and they were there. But it, oh, it's this additional range layer of that where 
you saw them in the hospital room. You knew that they were there. You knew that they were there to support you. But for some reason, being around them is like so uncomfortable. And you're just like, like, I can't be around you right now. Like talking, everything you're saying is pissing me off. You are in a very compromising position. Right. Well, and as I'm saying that now, I'm wondering, you know, and I, I don't think this is a thought that I've ever had before, but maybe that's just because it was like trauma trigger. We're there when things were bad. And so looking at them reminds me of that. Mm. And in some kind of Stockholm-y kind of way, I'm still friends with all these people and I love them dearly. But like is that because they were there and I feel obligated or because I'm having some kind of like Stockholm syndrome, which I don't think is true, but these are just things that are like kind of bouncing around in my head right now. <laughs> right. It's a little bit of a different perspective from previous people I've spoken to, or at least the other previous person I can think of off the top of my head who dealt with a cancer diagnosis at a fairly young age where I think the perspective during that conversation was, yeah, I had friends who stuck by me, but there were a couple who got the news and just didn't know what the fuck to do with it. Oh my God. Yes. Again, this was the Insider article and a lot of what I talk about, because this is another facet of being in a bad situation that is medically centered, that people just are not equipped to be there. And one of my closest friends told him I had cancer and never saw him again. Had a boyfriend. Stuck with me for a little while when things started to get real shit. Found out he was dating someone else and he broke up with me. So, editorializing. (laughs) Shitty part is that he left. But I kind of understand being confronted with a traumatic situation and being like, oh, I can't handle this. I need to get the fuck out. Yeah. The shitty part is that it wasn't just like I can't handle this. I'm going to leave. It was like, I'm seeing somebody else and I can't handle this. So I'm going to leave. Well, yes. And yes. And the shitty part is that it happened. The shittier part is that I understand why. And the question then becomes, would I do the same? And I don't know. Statistically speaking, men leave in situations like that. A very, 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 very close to hundred percent of the time they leave. So do I wish it was handled differently? Yes. Am I butthurt about it? No. He's made his choices and I've had an update and it like live your life. I don't care what you're doing. (laughs) But it's also, I've told this story before. So forgive me for repeating myself or anyone. No, no, no. It's the two people that are actually (laughs) listening to me all the time. But uh, back in the day, a friend of mine and I were at an audition and we met this guy and we were both fighting over him. Like, he's so cute. And she was like, no, I think he's for me. I was like, no, bitch, he's for me. And we just had this, like, it was really funny. Found out that he was for her, and he had asked her on a date. But we also found out that he had a fiancé who had ALS. And she was bedridden, couldn't speak, couldn't feed herself, was, like, using the Stephen Hawking's computer kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, she confronted him about it and was like, you have a fiancé. I am not going on a date with you. And when she told me this story later, this is kind of where it flipped the switch for me. He said, I am her boyfriend, but she is not my girlfriend. And both of our reactions were like, oh my God, you horrible human. But really, when you think about it, I get this because I think this is the position that I found myself in, is that she needed him to be her boyfriend because that's what she needed to get through the day. Because that was something that she could hold on to. That was like, this is still a future. I get to live and have this. 
Whereas he understood it from a different perspective, seeing where she was at. And even though he still was her caretaker and taking impeccable care of her and and doing all of the things, he was going to live and have a life beyond her death. And so not knowing how long that was going to be, like how long are you going to be on pause watching this person completely disintegrate? Right. And like, whereas cancer and ALS are very different, different. you know, mm-hmm. the circumstances are are the same in that this guy didn't know what my outcome was going to be and probably needed support that I could not offer and attached himself to like, I don't know, the first person that came along. I don't know what the circumstances were. It doesn't matter, but was not equipped to stick around and was not able to be there when I needed them to be there. And I don't fault them. I think I did for a long time. But like, again, having that friend kind of talk to me about that, it was like, oh, yeah. (laughs) That is a level of forgiveness or a level of empathy. I don't know that I'm capable of. But see, that's why that is why I approach that conversation from a place of not caring but also understanding because if i were put in that situation i don't know what i would do right because there are a multitude of reasons why i would not be able to stick around first and foremost being i've been through this i don't want to be around it again right there are weird triggers that even now still pop up in my life and i'm like oh uncomfortable time to go (laughs) and if i had to be in a hospital day in and day out with somebody i cared about like that'd be a lot yeah, I don't know that I am equipped to be anyone's caretaker. Yeah, and as two-dimensional and shallow and dumb as that sounds for anyone, I mean, not a judgment to you, because I feel the same way. Yeah. I would rather know that and be honest with myself than try yeah. to be something for someone that I can't be and letting them down later. Oh, 100%. 100%. So why don't I have kids? Same. Yeah. Don't want them. Yes. Yeah, seriously. Oh, when... You get the all clear. What does that give me a look? (laughs) Because I know what What you ask. (laughs) What does that feel like? I I was trying to think of a different way to ask it, but what does it feel like to have the doctor or the team or whoever it is be like, hey, look, Edward, you've been through this process and guess what? Clean bill of health. Yeah. So I think a week prior, I had gotten a needle biopsy where I had done radiation. I had done four rounds of chemo. I had done a stem cell transplant. I was a hundred days out from my stem cell transplant. And so this needle biopsy appointment, they were going to take 14 samples from the site of where the tumor was. And if they couldn't find any living cells, I was good. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't going to find out at that appointment They could give me a preliminary, but they couldn't give me an official. So I left knowing that preliminarily they had not found any living cancer cells. So in taking out those cells, they could look at them and preliminarily unofficially say, we don't see any living cancer cells. They did this 14 times with these huge fucking needles that they were just like digging into my arm and pulling out and taking over to a a Petri dish and a microscope and having a look. So I had to walk around for a week not knowing one way or another. 
Oh. And and if there were living cancer cells, then I don't know what I would have had to do. It would have meant that nothing worked and we would have to start all over. Right. And who knows? Right. But I got the phone call two days before my birthday and it was my oncologist and she told me. And it was very matter of fact because that's just how she was. She only lost her temper with me one time. And it was my fault. <laughs> I own that. Good, good, yes, good ownership. Yep, really, my fault. And uh, I'm a championship self sabotager. We can talk <laughs> about that if you'd like. So, yeah, I mean, she just called and kind of told me that there were, there was no detectable cancer cells, and I was good. And I would have to continue coming to appointments spread out over a certain amount of time. But as of that moment, they were able to definitively and confidently say that I was cancer free. And did you throw a fucking party? Did you pray? Did you have a drink in celebration? I don't pray. Um, <laughs> maybe I should. I don't know. I don't know. So, yeah, I mean, all of the above. You hung up the phone, and I had another really big, ugly cry. Because it was essentially a year of this thing that had taken over my entire life and had a chokehold on me in a bad way that was gone. Right. And it was like I could breathe again. Like, and I think I realized that at that point I had been holding my breath for a year. And so I called my parents and I called my sisters and I called my grandparents and I told them the news. And then I posted on Facebook because I didn't tell anyone during this period of time. It was just close friends and family. And I was like, hey, everyone, back from my year of social media hiatus. Here's what's been going on and just found out and I'm good. And, uh, and then, of course, two days later, I had a birthday party planned with friends at this restaurant that is no longer in Hell's Kitchen. And the party could have gone very differently if the news was not the news. Right. But yeah, I mean, we went out, we had this big fancy birthday party with like a bunch of people and spending all the money and not caring. But yeah, I got to ride into 26 cancer-free and it was a really strange feeling because then the oh shit feeling came in. Where you go from like being on edge to being able to celebrate that you don't have to do this shit anymore and think, what am I going to do? Because now it's been a year since I've been to an audition. Casting offices have stopped calling. I had to turn down work. I didn't have a job job. What am I going to do? And I kind of defaulted back to like menial jobs that were like they're adjacent and uh, that was kind of how i was humming through life for a while until i felt better enough and confident enough i think to start going back to auditions again and i just kind of started piecing things back together but the one thing and i i talk about this a little bit in a couple different places but one of the things that i don't think i really realized at that point and maybe i wish i would have and maybe i don't is that the life that I was trying to put back together for myself was not the one that I should have had. Hmm. And I say should have in like very loose terms. Like I'm not right. upset with where I'm at in my life right now. Like I'm fine. But in hindsight, thing felt right. And I just blamed it on cancer the year prior. But like going to auditions felt stupid. Doing shows felt stupid. And I was kind of resistant to it. And it was very much like, why do I want to do this? Like, it feels so stupid. It means nothing. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't until a friend of mine took me to see Newsies and we had like, 
second row orchestra seats and they were archiving for Lincoln Center and it was just like a hoot and a holler kind of audience. I'd never seen the show before. And something happened in that show where the orchestra came down and the curtain opened and I cried through the whole show. Like, that's not a sad show. Right, it's not. There's some emotional moments, but I was a mess. And I'm sure that anyone saw me was like, what is wrong with him? Are you okay? (laughs) Oh, God. What's happening in in his life? What is happening in row two? And it was really just because a couple things happened. One, I kind of realized how much I missed seeing shows. And then also one thing that always gets me about seeing shows is like the teamwork, the team on stage. Mm-hmm. working together equally to make something happen and to tell a story on stage. I love that. I always love that. Curtain calls get me every time, regardless of if the show is good. It's just like this this parade of people who have worked so hard to do something for you. Right. It's an act of kindness and it's an act of giving to be a performer and an actor. And that was something that occurred to me. And then from a personal perspective, sitting in the audience – having felt like performing is selfish and like, why do I want to do this? And this is so shit. What am I doing with my life? I had this, this realization where I was like, if I'm sitting here and I'm having the reaction to the show that I'm having and realizing how badly I needed this, then it's fair to say that in every audience I've ever performed for and ever will perform for that. There is someone there who also needs the same thing. Oh yeah. And for a long time, that became my reason for doing things and for going for shows and to find ways to perform no matter what, because I wanted to, I guess, have that validation that I was giving that experience back. And sometimes it it showed itself. I'll never forget. I was doing Seven Brides out in Indiana. God, what an experience. And uh, there was an afternoon matinee where this teacher brought his special needs class in. And there was a girl named Ebony who had cerebral palsy. And he, the teacher sent me a message on Facebook afterwards. And he was like, hey, I just brought my class to see the show. And one of my students really loved you and just wanted to say hi. And so sent me a photo of the two of them. And she's like in her wheelchair and like is waving and smiling at the camera with him. And I just was like, oh, that right there, that and it's so humbling and i hate to use that word cuz i that's whatever but like it's just one of those things where you're like oh fuck like, all of the dumb shit that i do and all the d- stupid feelings that i have around this goddamn industry <laughs> and my fucking career <laughs> don't matter because there's ebony in indiana who has cerebral palsy and is probably i don't know maybe 17 now and like maybe she remembers that show and it's something that she talks about with however audible she is. I don't know if she was non-speaking or not, but that's something that is in her brain cells. Right. You and, made somebody's day. Yeah. And like something I want to do anyway. And so if, if I get to make someone's day by doing something I love, then we all win. That's real. And I bitch about this industry a lot because there is a lot wrong with it. And it needs a lot of help, especially now. But really what it comes down to, and I wish the powers that be had the same experience, is that we're just trying to help each other. And if that means we're helping each other by helping ourselves, okay. Right. There is self-interest in every act of altruism. Absolutely. 
even public servants have self-interests, as yeah. we have seen for the worst. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Not, yes. To, not to get too political on anyone, yeah. but yeah. Um, <laughs> we're looking at you politicians. <laughs> yes. But yeah, it, yeah, I think it's the reason why I do anything. When I self-published my book a couple years ago, which was a huge mistake, do not recommend. <laughs> but I had healthcare providers reach out to me who had read it, and they had found it online somehow, and I got messages that were like, hey, I read your book. And it was a lot of, this changed my perspective on bedside manner. Wow. And this is stuff that I never would have considered about a patient ever. What? This is stuff that isn't taught. And it's not what I was going for at all. <laughs> right. right. I was kind of going for, let's talk about the things that me as a cancer patient didn't know before, during, and after. Right. And shed some humorous spotlight on that. You never know who's going to read something that you didn't necessarily intend into to put out into the world. Right, which is why we need to be very careful about what we put on the internet. Yes, we absolutely do. <laughs> Shock of all of that, we're talking about how you kind of did theater-adjacent work for a while, and I would imagine it took some time to just get over the shock of what you had experienced. Yeah. I mean, just recently, someone's like talking about, I think I saw it on TikTok because where else do I see anything anymore? <laughs> Until know, they ban it. They won't. And that's a whole podcast in and of itself. <laughs> oh, God. But I think it was uh, someone had given a breakdown of what an existential crisis was. Mm. And I was like, oh, my God, I've had a couple of those. <laughs> It's like, oh my god, I get it. <laughs> That's what that was. <laughs> right. I, I understand. I've seen the light. Right. I totally know what you're saying. So yeah, I mean, that's kind of what it is. You have this like crisis, like an existential crisis. So many crises happening at the same time because you're just like, I don't know who I am anymore. I don't know what I right. want to do anymore. Who are you? <laughs> right. Well, in addition to the crises that we as humans have, I think in addition to the crises, existential crises that a lot of queer men have, I just stack them on. Yeah, yeah. Just got crisis on top of crisis on top of. You had a right. uh, what do they call that game where you stack the wooden blocks? You had a Jenga crisis. Yeah, I did. Oh my god, that's a great <laughs> term. Can we write the board of like psychology and and coin that? Yeah, it's called. Yes, I will talk to my therapist on uh, yeah. the Jenga it, effect. Yes, multiple crises happening at the, at the same, same time. time for one in particular human. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So many. But um, it really was kind of this uh, navigation of who I was, what I wanted, where I wanted to go, what my life wanted to look like. And it all happened at once. <sighs> and so like, how could you possibly handle more than one of those things at once? And so I picked the one that I knew the most about. And that was what I wanted to do. And that was theater and work. I've always worked. I've never not worked. I've had a job since I was like 15 God help me. Can I retire yet? I same. <laughs> but it was like maybe in hindsight, like, should I have done that? Should I have focused on something else? Should I have taken better advantage of my circumstances at the time? Should I have not done X, Y, and Z? There's a lot of things that I ask myself, and they're at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. And what, what's great about it is that I'm pretty happy with where I'm at now. And I wouldn't be here if those things didn't happen. Right. Because they were all experiences. I think of them as like bumpers on a bowling lane, on a bowling alley, where you're like trying to figure it out. And these little bumpers keep pushing you back towards center. And somehow or another, you end up at the pins. You are the sum total of your experiences. God help us all. <laughs> you know, for some people, that's a good thing. For some people, that's a bad thing. And I think when people are aware of it and can work to make sense of some of those experiences... 
it leads to us becoming better or, or more, what's the word I'm looking for? More whole humans. Right. And I mean, it, that's the goal, right? Like, go through life and you try to figure out how to be whole and then you die. That's but, sad. I mean, weirdly. I mean, it isn't. It isn't. It yeah. is and it's not. I mean, I think yeah. of it as like fish, putting that last piece of the puzzle into the piece and then you right. frame it and you hang it on the wall. Well, everybody knows what the last piece is going to be, right? You always know what right. the first piece is going to be. You always know what the last piece is going to be. You spend your entire life just trying to fit all the other pieces in. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. We came up with that together, Edward. We did. What are we writing to coin? Yeah, I know. Exactly. <laughs> so what... Uh, coin metaphors? Like, how does that work? Seriously. <laughs> seriously. We've done a couple in less than an hour. I I, I, I I feel good about our future prospects. Brilliant minds. Let us work together always. <laughs> yes, indeed. You're dealing well now. You're working. You've got a book. You've got kind of this other stuff. What is sustaining you besides your work? Is this a trick question? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I, know. I guess the question for me is like, what do you mean by sustain? Keeping you sane-ish. Keeping me sane-ish. I, for the first time in my, I think, life, know what I want, know how to get it, know where it is, and know what I need to do to get there. And I don't know if I've ever had that before. That's a clarity that I don't think a lot of people, even if they think they have it, I don't think a lot of people actually have. Yeah. Well, and I mean, what's stupid about it <laughs> is that it's this book. Like the, the life that I want this book to have is this very, very tangible thing in front of me that I can hold in my hands and throw it straight, let's stick with the bowling metaphor, throw it straight down the bowling alley and know exactly where it's going to land. Right. Like there's a lot of factors that are going to go into that happening, but like I'm going to make it happen and I'll do what I need to do to get it. So the book is technically in its second iteration right now. was fortunate enough to get picked up by a publisher and have that happen. It's in like 30 or 40 different retailers. Barnes & Noble being my favorite, again. <laughs> Love that. This podcast was sponsored by <laughs> Barnes & Noble. I know. I'm in the middle of launching a podcast now and anytime we mention something, we're like, not sponsored. <laughs> <laughs> but then I'm, I'm also in the middle of adapting this book for TV. And it's going to be a musical TV show like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Amazing. And uh, the idea is to create a thing around this book, a season around this book, and then roll it into an actual Broadway musical. But I'm not really sure how to do that part. But I know how to do the first part, so we're going to do that. <laughs> you figure it out. You yeah, figure so, it out. Yeah. yeah, so right now while we're kind of putting all those pieces in order, I'm doing like digital book tour on the podcast circuit because I can't afford to travel around the country and do all that stuff. You know? And so we're utilizing social media and it's brothers and sisters to get, get the same thing done. But yeah, I, the TV component I'm so excited about because that feels like the most definitive path I know how to do. Right. And that, it's such an interesting story and it feels like it would translate well. It's going to. <laughs> <laughs> he says with confidence. I, well, I mean, it's it's already half written and there's some music that's most done for some of it that I've put together. And really what it comes down to is like the kind of final pieces of like judging the script and getting the music written and orchestrated out and recorded, which I can do in my own apartment, as we were talking about earlier, and, and fundraising and making sure we have the money to make this as, of the highest quality. And 
I have a couple numbers in mind for that to happen for this pilot. And I'm not going low budget. I'm not going indie because I want it to get picked up and I want it to be something that I can hire a big fancy publicist for and spray it across the internet. (laughs) (laughs) That was not a water sport sports joke. Anybody listening? Only fans. (laughs) (laughs) I got to ask going back to the beginning of your story. So maybe this will be the beginning and, and the ending here. Um, starting your adult life at 17 and moving, like graduating high school and moving right out and going to New York. That is ballsy as fuck. And uh, I say that as someone who moved out on my own at 17 as well. Yeah. Yeah. Not my finest hour, but. Right. For vaguely similar reasons. There was no church or anything like that involved. But regardless, I. What is the chutzpah that it takes to do that? What gave you like presence of mind even to just be like, I'm 17 years old. My friends are going to college. I'm going to just pack my shit up and go to New York City. So (laughs) I planned on going to college. It was definitely a conversation because I wanted to go for music. I wanted to go to Berkeley in wherever that is and study. It's in Boston. Sure. I was going to say Massachusetts, and then I second-guessed myself. <sighs> Guess what my GPA was. <laughs> oh, God. Well, was just Boston. Maybe your geography grades weren't the highest. But yeah, it's whatever. <laughs> that was the only college I really looked at. I looked at AMDA in New York and LA, and I looked at Berkeley, and I think I looked at the Philadelphia School of the Arts. That was the only school that I toured. My, my okay. parents took me there, and I, I went on a tour with my dad. And I just remember the dorm apartments, the ceiling was like right above my head. And I was like, how am I going to live here? And there was just so many things that I was like, I can't, I don't want to do this. And it wasn't until I think senior year, I think it was either the end of my junior year or my senior year. And I decided to look into Backstage Magazine and see if I could find a voice teacher in New York. And I found this guy who will remain nameless because he was arrested for sleeping with his students. Anyway, I studied with him for a while. Nothing happened. But it's kind of because of him that I moved here. He saw the potential in me and he was also running a cult and maybe human trafficking now that I'm thinking about it. Holy shit. All alleged. All alleged. I have no proof. and I will not say his name, but it was kind of a wild, wild situation after the fact. But... He was the first person that said to me, you don't have to go to college to do this. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, you can just like move here and study with me and other people that you want to study with and you can just do it. And I've always been the just do it person out of everyone in my family. I'm always the one that's like, okay. (laughs) And so hearing him say that, that was like, oh, (laughs) I hate school. I don't want right. to spend four more years or more in school. Right. right. Like, and I also say this a lot, that line in Hamilton, like, why do I write like I'm running out of time? I didn't know how to articulate it until I heard that line. The first time I heard that line, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> but I felt that way for so long. And especially in my younger years, where it was like, I have to get all this done. Like, I need to get all of this done. And maybe on some other timeline, it's because I knew that something was going to happen where I was going to die. Right. 
when I was 25. And I think about that a lot because I did nothing to keep myself alive. I did all the self-sabotage things to make sure that I did not survive cancer. And I did still. But that, that need to like do the things and like hurry up and let's go and let's do it. I've always had that ever since I was a kid. And all of that said made sense to me to just not go to college. Like I never did what everyone else was doing. I never got into Twilight or Harry Potter or any of that shit because everyone was doing it. I was like, nope, that's dumb. Everyone's doing it. I'm going to do something else because I was like, right. So (laughs) two levels of things here. You're your own person. I'm a cunt. Okay. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think yes and (laughs) yes, I am my own person, but I was also a bratty teenager. And I think the story that I say around that one the most is like in the second grade, we went to DC as a field trip for school and it happened to be World AIDS Day and Boys to Men happened to be performing and we had the opportunity to go see them for free. And I was like, Boys to Men is dumb. Even though I fucking loved them, I was still being a brat. So that's what I mean by that. <laughs> I was hoping that story would evolve into I ended up getting on stage and singing with Boys to Men. Right. I was the fifth member of right. Boys to Men <laughs> at the age of nine. Nine. There you go. Um, yeah. So, I mean, all that said, it was kind of those pieces that lined up that it was like, oh, I don't need to go to college. Let's just spend the money we would have spent on college and bring my ass to fucking New York. And then I found out that there was no college fund. I had assumed there was. And my grades were shit, so I didn't have any room for scholarship because I spent all of high school, first of all, on defense, being the outed gay kid, and then also knowing exactly what I wanted to do and not wanting to waste my time in calculus class. Like, what the fuck am I learning calculus for? Like, I I don't know. It was like, I don't know. One damn person who has used calculus in their adult life. None. And so I was very frustrated by all of that once the blinders started to come off because I had been driving to New York on weekends since I was like 16, 17. See my voice teacher, whoever age I was, I was doing it on the weekends. And sometimes because cell phones weren't really a thing, I had a little Nokia whatever while I was traveling, but like I'd skip my lesson and I'd, I'd go into the city and I'd just walk around Hell's Kitchen. I'd walk around Midtown and I'd just like look at all the Broadway theaters and get in trouble later, but I would take the money that my parents gave me for lessons and I would just like fuck off in new york park my car somewhere either in jersey or in midtown and hope it didn't get towed (laughs) and uh, walk around and that's that was what really kind of sold me on wanting to move there without having to go to college because it was like why (laughs) right i didn't see the point aunt worked on broadway i saw people making careers out of this and I don't remember if she kind of forced that idea of like, no, you don't have to go to college. Those people didn't. And they're on Broadway. I don't remember if she did that. But I, I do know that there was a moment where someone said that to me or I had realized that. And I was like, I made the right choice. That did not happen. But I don't regret not going. Because I've, I've gotten to work in so many cool places, not just as an actor, but like I worked in venture capital at 20. Total accident. Wow. I was a makeup artist. Huh. At Fashion Week. I've done so much weird shit that makes no sense that I wouldn't have done if I would have gone to college. So is the next book going to be All the Weird Shit That I've Done by Edward Miskey? (laughs) You're not too far (laughs) off. Edward is so engaging as a speaker and so funny. I I can't wait to read more of his writing 
And uh, the book is out now. It is called Cancer, Musical Theater, and Other Chronic Illnesses. Uh, congratulations, Edward, on surviving cancer. Um, he's passed his tenure, so uh, big kudos to you. Uh, I'm looking forward to what he has coming down the pipeline. Um, I hope that there is more books, more writing, all of that good stuff. Hope to have him back on the show as well. If you would like to know more about Edward, you can go to edwardmiskey.com. Uh, that is E-D-W-A-R-D-M-I-S-K-I-E.com. You can also find him on Instagram at Edward Miskey. Thanks again, Edward, for doing the show. Really appreciate you taking the time, particularly as you were apparently super, super tired that day. So thanks again. Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, Once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, Follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as DetoxPodGuy. Uh, You can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, Please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, Rate, comment, help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings, uh, follow me on social media, like I said, uh, follow our Patreon, or subscribe to my Patreon, actually, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod, you get access to exclusive episodes, you get episodes a little earlier than the general public, you get a cool-ass sticker, lots of stuff, once again, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod, quick shout out to Calvin Williams for providing the music, and, uh, doing his magic on the logo which was originally designed by jacob block i thank you all for listening i wish you all the best please take care of each other till next time peace